Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This would have been fertile propaganda for Americans to say, look at what the British are doing. They're so cruel and desperate that they're going to put women in the battlefield against us. Uh, you know, how ridiculous is that? That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Jim Pikich. And he has a new article featuring an editorial suggesting that women serve in the British Army during the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Museum of the American Revolution, exploring the ideas, events, and legacies of America's revolutionary beginnings. Plan your visit today. For more information, visit www.amrevmuseum.org. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today we're joined by Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Jim Pikich. And he has new research published recently on the Journal of the American Revolution website, www.allthingsliberty.com, highlighting an editorial he discovered, written by an anonymous writer, recommending that women join the British war effort in a combat situation. It's a fascinating article, and it's one that was, we'll say, not well-received at the time. Now, this is a really important article, and one I think that's very interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of the biggest is that we live today in a world where it is commonplace for women to serve in all capacities in the the American military, uh, in both combat and support situations. And when you listen to Jim talk about the editorial he found, again, written anonymously, And you hear the the recommendations that this writer put forward. Assuming she was a woman, she was pretty serious about the recommendation. Uh, She listed height and weight requirements. She listed who who or which women would be most eligible for service. Uh, And I think it's very revealing about how the British public at the time viewed the revolution. And that's a view we don't get enough of. It's one of the great things about the Journal of the American Revolution, these wonderful opportunities to learn, perspectives we don't often hear from. Uh, But more than the, I guess, gendered nature of the article, Jim also gets into the important nature of editorials and newspapers in terms of shaping public opinion uh, and really influencing policy at the time. It's a great interview, and it's a topic I think that is not studied enough. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jim Pikich. Jim Pikich, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Okay, uh, I was always interested in history uh, from hearing the stories. My grandfather was a World War I veteran, my father was a World War II vet, and of course my grandparents and parents lived through the depression so I heard a lot of stories that interested me and 
uh, I began reading a lot of history even when I was young, and uh, I lived in Manchester, New Hampshire originally, uh, got a job on the fire department there, full-time firefighter, and in the downtime at the fire station, I continued to read history, and eventually I decided to go back and finish my degree, which I hadn't made much progress with originally out of high school. So uh, I began studying history, uh, got my bachelor's from the University of New Hampshire, and decided to go on for my master's, uh, did very well in that program, also at the University of New Hampshire, and then was awarded a fellowship at the Ph.D. program in history at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. So I uh, continued, and as, uh, as an undergraduate, you know, an adult undergraduate, my interest uh, shifted towards the American Revolution uh, because I was amazed how little I knew about it compared to how much I thought I knew. So I uh, focused on that through my graduate work and uh, for my doctoral dissertation. Um, I taught American history at a university in Georgia for 13 years and uh, recently left that position to focus full-time on writing uh, I've been involved with the Journal of the American Revolution uh, for many years and enjoy that as well. Uh, so that is uh, pretty much it. What first drew your interest into this topic? Actually, this uh, was an accident. I was doing some research uh, for a few other projects that I have at various locations on the back burner, uh, but I had a, access to a database of early American newspapers, and I was using various search terms uh, looking for other material when this article came up. And when I saw it and read it, I found it fascinating. I hadn't run across anything like it. So uh, I actually did more searches uh, using some of the terms that were in the essay, but unfortunately nothing came up. Uh, I was able to pull more background material uh, for the piece I wrote, uh, but it was uh, really accidentally that I encountered the article that attracted me to this topic and uh, led me to try to explore it in a little more depth. What were women's traditional roles in the British war effort? The generally accepted role for women was that of camp follower, which was the 18th century term. Uh, Dr. Holly Mayer uh, has done a lot of work on American camp followers in the Revolutionary Era. Um, and uh, the British experience was similar, except that it had been in practice for much longer uh, long before the American Revolution and had uh, been much more acceptable. And female camp followers were generally uh, wives, mistresses, sometimes even sisters or mothers of the soldiers, uh, sometimes girlfriends who might attach themselves to soldiers on the march. Uh, some of them, but uh, a minority, were prostitutes, although uh, they're sometimes all tarred with that brush. Uh, some of them were widows who moved with the army and uh, conducted you know, what we might consider today a small business selling uh, 
goods uh, to soldiers to supplement their rations or not only perhaps of food, uh, but of rum and other things. And what they did, um, 18th century armies did not have the vast support tail uh, that armies in the 20th and 21st century enjoyed. Uh, think of modern era troops today. Uh, they don't have to worry about cooking their own uh, food or treating their own wounds. Uh, but these women who were with the British Army and uh, reluctantly accepted by George Washington uh, with the Continental Army uh, would do all of those duties. They'd help set up the camp after the day's march. They would help with the cooking. They would do laundry. They would uh, act as nurses for sick and wounded soldiers and provide all of those services that the Army itself did not provide and the British put them on the ration rolls so that uh, they would receive a lesser ration than a male soldier, but in recognition of their service, women and any children they had with them, and children frequently accompanied them, um, would receive rations from the Army in exchange for these services. They were also expected to obey all the orders, not to get in trouble, although we know you know there were various anytime you have a group of people in close proximity for a long time, there are going to be personal animosities, there are going to be feuds, and uh, these events did sometimes take place and sometimes actually involved the husbands. so um, they performed a very valuable role uh, in supporting the army in the field uh, and uh, Dr. Mayer uh, at Duquesne has also found that at least in the Continental Army, they actually uh, helped reduce desertions by providing a sense of community and family that the men did not have um, generally in an all-male army. Uh, so, so their contributions were important. It was very much a traditional domestic role, but, uh, but it was with the army and it was extremely valuable to the army. Had there been any examples of women previously serving? Well, the the best known was in the American army. Uh, we do know, and uh, there was an article in the journal of the American Revolution uh, a few years back of uh, accounts of women who had tried to enlist in the British army, but who had been recognized and been denied enlistment, uh, which was easier to do in the British Army because they had been around a lot longer and they had developed certain standards uh, for recruits, for evaluating recruits and whatnot. Uh, the best known example comes from the American Army. Uh, late in the war, Deborah Sampson, a uh, young woman from Massachusetts, uh, wanted to enlist and uh, eventually succeeded in doing so by dressing as a man, uh, taking the male name Robert Shirtliff, and actually served with a Massachusetts regiment uh, without being discovered until she was wounded in action. Uh, but that is very rare. Uh, in the American Civil War, there were maybe three or four women uh, who succeeded in pulling off this charade 
and pretending to be men. And it was a little easier to do in that era because so many relatively young men, really boys, enlisted. So uh, if the uh, soldier was not shaving, it was assumed, well, this is a teen that they just haven't started shaving yet. So as long as the woman was fairly careful, uh, she might be able to uh, pull off the deception for a while. Who was Thalestris, and what did she suggest? Okay, uh, she took the name Thalestris uh, from the legendary queen of the Amazons, the female uh, tribe of warriors. Uh, according to legend, Thalestris had met Alexander the Great when he was campaigning in the Caucasus region of uh, Eastern Europe on the near you know, what is now uh, you know, part of the uh, Russian Federation and uh, the countries to the southward, and supposedly she wanted uh, to bring some of her warriors to uh, basically have children by Alexander, uh, believing that his traits would be passed on to them. Uh, apparently that's all myth, of course, because I don't think we've ever found any uh, evidence of you know, actual Amazons. Uh, but this was, people at that time were very familiar with the classical era. Uh, so uh, while we don't know her real name, uh, I did search the, that name in the newspaper database. I only found one other reference to it. It was from an American uh, writer who wrote a poem in 1775, um, urging Americans to stand strong against the British. Um, so we don't know who she was. Uh, we can guess, based on the fact that she was familiar with the classics, uh, that she was able to compose a very articulate letter, that she was probably from, at the least, an upper-middle-class, possibly an upper-class background, uh, because she had an education that would not have been available to most women of her era. Uh, one of the uh, comments that I received uh, from readers of the essay suggested that this may have been a male writer um, because the original newspaper that published this, the London Morning Post, was a Whig newspaper and was not um, in accord with most of the British government's policies. Uh, that this may have been some uh, male satirical effort. And I won't say that is that it's impossible, but it's also true that from the phrasing of the letter uh, with you know, little hedges and whatnot, it's actually very common with what we see in the writings of women from that era. Uh, to give you an example again, uh, from the American side of the Atlantic, Judith Sargent Murray of Massachusetts, uh, who uh, had a successful career as a writer and as a very cautious advocate of women's rights, uh, wrote in a similar style. Uh, again, she came from a fairly prosperous background, so she had a good education. Uh, but she, in many cases, uh, wrote under pseudonyms 
even trying to create the impression that she was male. Uh, she would hedge her comments so that she could always say, oh, well, you know, this was a satire because uh, women's spheres were very limited, especially in the public and political sphere, and uh, you had to be cautious. Uh, so this is a woman who is exercising the caution uh, of her time, uh, but yet is trying to put forth an idea for consideration. And, of course, her idea is that why doesn't uh, the British Army take advantage of all its resources? Uh, there are camp followers at the militia uh, encampment at Coxheath, which uh, she was writing from Sunbury in England, which is uh, just outside London. Uh, Coxheath was on the other side of London, but not really too far from where she was. And from her description, she had either read press accounts of the women camp followers at Coxheath or perhaps had even seen them herself. And so she's suggesting that you know, this is a patriotic duty. These women are helping. But given the crisis Britain is facing, why not allow women to do something more, in this case, bear arms themselves? What was the basis of this anonymous writer's argument? Well, it's her letter, even though it wasn't uh, picked up by the American press and only one American newspaper in New Hampshire in 1779, uh, it was written in July without uh, a year attached uh, we can safely say that it would be 1778 because uh, given the lengthy transatlantic communications of July, mid-July 1779 letter would not have made it to the colonies in time to be published in mid-August. And remember the call, the United States is at war with Britain, so there's going to be a further delay, but newspapers will eventually make their way back and forth across the Atlantic. And uh, this is a time when... France has entered the war, Britain is now no longer simply suppressing a colonial rebellion, they have to face a world war against their traditional enemy, France. And that means the West Indies have become a theater, and those islands have to be protected, and one sugar island in the West Indies was worth far more to the British Empire than one of the New England colonies. As a matter of fact, in 1763, at the end of the French and Indian War, uh, Benjamin Franklin was a little disappointed that the British decided to take Canada from the French. Uh, he said, I'm paraphrasing here, now, wouldn't it have been better to let the French keep Canada and get them to give us one of their sugar islands in the Caribbean? So uh, they know they have to protect against the uh, the French trying to take back territory they'd lost in the West Indies. Uh, the French are also involved in India itself, in West Africa, and they may try to retake Canada. And there's also the knowledge pretty much not only in London among British officials, but everywhere in the world that where France goes, Spain is eventually going to follow. And if Spain enters the war, then you have the threat to Gibraltar, uh, you have threats in the Mediterranean, uh, the Spanish control Louisiana, so there is a threat to the 
uh, British provinces that they had taken in 1763 from Spain, uh, East and West Florida. So Britain is definitely short of manpower. And, of course, that's reflected in the orders that Henry Clinton gets when he assumes command of the British Army. Uh, and he's told you have to send troops to Canada to replace Burgoyne's army, which had been lost the previous fall. Uh, you have to send 5,000 troops to the West Indies, and you have to send 2,000 troops to Pensacola to guard against possible Spanish intervention. Oh, and by the way, don't expect any new units. We'll send recruits and replacements for your existing units, but uh, Clinton is basically stripped of a third of his force to meet these other threats. So British manpower is strained. Uh, they have troops in Ireland, and they've been sending some of those troops to the colonies in North America, but they can't obviously weaken the Irish garrison too much because uh, they're not particularly welcome in Ireland, and they have to now start thinking about reinforcing Gibraltar, and they have to think, uh, and they are preparing for, in 1778 and 79, for a possible cross-channel invasion by the combined French and Spanish armies and their fleets. So uh, there is a real shortage of manpower, and this is what the Lestris points out, that uh, there's a shortage of manpower. The recruiting officers aren't you know, able to withdraw too many men um, you know, from their, their jobs into the army you know, that's already strained. That's somewhat of an exaggeration, but there is, of course, always a problem if you take men from certain important civilian occupations, then you're unable to support your army in the field with the supplies they need and uh, you know, other uh, in other ways. So she says, hey, you know, there's plenty of women in England and you think all we're doing is engaged in frivolous parties. You know, why not take advantage of women's services and uh, create some regiments of women and meet the manpower shortage that way? She's very detailed. She even puts forth standards for service, including height and weight. Uh, what else does she, does she suggest? She wants a height requirement for enlisted men. Uh, she says six feet. And again, one of the comments on my essay, um, the person made uh, a very interesting point. They said, well, the average height of women in England this time was about five feet, one inch. And that's, you know, undoubtedly true or close to it. Um, so how many women six feet or over were there in, she says, in London and elsewhere in England? Probably not very many, uh, but she may have been using that not so much as a uh, an actual figure, but pointing out that she wants you know, tall women, that yeah, this is a starting point for a suggestion, obviously, uh, and that maybe, you know, five feet, eight or five ten or something but i think she she's realizing that you know you have to have you know certain physical attributes for military service uh so her initial suggestion at least is uh six feet in height uh for enlisted personnel and 
I think she used the phrase well-made or something, uh, but in you know, that era it referred to basically people who are physically fit. So she's saying we have a lot of tall, physically fit women in England who you know, have the capacity to be soldiers. Uh, she removes the height requirement for officers uh, because uh, she admits herself that she's only five feet, three and a half inches tall, and she wants to serve. Uh, but she says, now, smaller people are generally more active. Again, that's something that was widely believed, uh, light infantry in the British Army and also in the Continental Army were generally uh, smaller uh, men who were believed to, to be more agile. Uh, and so she's saying, you know, there shouldn't be a height requirement for officers because uh, smaller women will still have physical agility and, of course, your height has nothing to do with your mental capacity, your ability to lead. Uh, so she admits to a little bit of self-interest, but also um, argues that this will, um, you know, give these women, these shorter women, um, who could still be of service, the opportunity uh, to be out there, although they would be acting as commanders. And it makes sense in a way if somebody who's 5'3 is going to uh, have a little more difficulty handling a heavy brown bess musket um, than somebody who is, say, five feet eight or ten, or to use her, no, or six feet tall. Uh, they're just probably going to be able to handle that more easily. How was her recommendation received by the public and by the British High Command? Some people may have taken it as a satire, and in some respects. Uh, as I mentioned with Judith Sargent Murray, uh, this was written in a way that, you know, had people been dismissive, she could have said, oh, well, I was only really, you know, joking about this uh, so as not to offend uh, men who would have been upset with her pushing beyond an accepted woman's uh, station of that era. But um, my own suspicion is that the the British government would certainly not have dignified it uh, with a reply, and there was nothing in the American press uh, which surprised me a little bit because I thought that uh, American newspapers tended to, uh, once one paper picked up a story, especially a story from Britain, uh, that would be reprinted, and you can generally trace these stories. So a story that appears in Boston will be reprinted a week or two later in Hartford and in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and then a week or two beyond that in New York, and then possibly the following week in Philadelphia. And this would have been fertile propaganda for Americans to say, look at what the British are doing. They're so cruel uh, and desperate that they're going to you know, put women in, women in the battlefield against uh, us. Uh, you know, how ridiculous is that? But... Uh, I was unable to find any uh, reaction on either side, which was somewhat disappointing. Your article has a great anecdote about an exchange between John and Abigail Adams. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, this is the basis of uh, Abigail Adams's reputation as a proto-feminist, uh, which, in my view... Uh, not to take away anything from Abigail Adams, she was a very capable 
woman, and she, you know she certainly was not afraid of expressing her views, at least privately to her, her husband. Uh, but she kept her views private, as opposed to more uh, outspoken writers like her friend uh, and uh, someone uh, who she uh, wrote to and spoke to frequently, Mercy Otis Warren, uh, another woman in Massachusetts who was extremely active as a playwright and propagandist for the revolutionary movement and was not afraid to uh, let it be known that she was a woman. Uh, but Abigail Adams was more circumspect, and uh, when John Adams had gone to Philadelphia uh, as a member of the Continental Congress and uh, word reached Massachusetts that Congress was considering declaring independence, Abigail wrote to him and said, I hope in the new government you're going, you're planning to create, that you will remember the ladies and not, you know, lord it over us, you know, like men have had a tendency to do uh, in your new system of laws, you know, give us uh, better treatment. And, uh, of course, she's referring to the um, idea that a woman's legal identity was uh, subsumed it first in her father or other adult male guardian, and then upon marriage uh, into her uh, husband. And they could, women could technically, unless they were a widow uh, or a spinster, only uh, exercise rights through their husband. Uh, that's one of the complaints Judith Sergeant Murray made. Uh, she wanted to dispose of some property that she had inherited from her father, and she couldn't do it because she was a woman. Uh, and this, of course, was after the Revolution. Uh, so Abigail Adams is, tells John in her private letter to him, uh, think about giving women some rights. And uh, Adams, basically John Adams, uh, ridicules the idea, not only in his letter to Abigail, uh, calling her very saucy and saying that if women are pushing for rights, what's next are... African Americans and children and servants and everybody else going to expect some kind of rights under this new government. Um, John Adams is still very much a person of his time uh, and seeing this as a male dominated patriarchal society. Uh, so his response to her is sarcastic and he also actually shared her comments with some of his fellow members of Congress and. Uh, did so in an unflattering way. Uh, so it gives a sense of what uh, women were up against, uh, even in the, you know, in the creation of the United States. What do you think this article tells us about the greater American revolutionary story? Okay, uh, I think uh, there are a couple of things. One is that... Um, the American Revolution, for all of what uh, Gordon Wood uh, termed in one of the title of one of his books, uh, the radicalism of the American Revolution, uh, and certainly the revolution was radical in uh, its desire to replace a monarchy with a republic. Uh, Republicans were known to be very frail political entities. Uh, most in history had not ended well, and uh, so, yes, they were willing to take that step. Uh, they were willing to risk war and 
you know, as Franklin said, if we could all hang together uh, because a failed insurrection in that the revolution was an insurrection uh, could have resulted in treason charges. Uh, so there, there was a, uh, you know, some elements of radicalism, but in a sense, the revolution was also very conservative. It, uh, the revolutionary leadership uh, didn't want to change the existing social system uh, to any significant extent. They didn't want to extend new rights to women. Uh, they didn't want to uh, tamper with the institution of slavery. Uh, and that, of course, becomes a big point of contention later at the Constitutional Convention uh, when uh, George Mason of Virginia takes a leading role in arguing that this is a time to abolish slavery. And uh, the uh, majority of the southern states uh, and even people in states where slavery is relatively limited or has already been declared illegal under state law say, no, well, we don't want to tamper with this institution. Uh, we don't really want to change the social order. Um, so uh, it, this shows us uh, a great deal about the conservatism of the American Revolution uh, Yes, there's a lot of violence that's sometimes downplayed. It's certainly not as bad as the French Revolution, but uh, you know, there's a lot of violence, for example, against loyalists and loyalists striking back. Uh, so the, you know, there is upheaval, but in general, um, the idea is to make as smooth a transition as possible from a monarchy to a republic, uh, but with very much the same system, uh, which is why uh, it, this is a... It's related, but maybe slightly off track, but it's, it's a story that's worth telling, is that uh, during the early national period, Washington's first term, when John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and Thomas Jefferson are still friends, um, which, of course, doesn't last long, because by uh, about 1796 or so, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton despise each other, and the only thing that they can agree on is that they both despise John Adams even more <laughs> than each other. Uh, but uh, there's this, and it may be an apocryphal story, but supposedly the three are conversing, and uh, Adams says, you know, this new constitutional system we have is okay, but I wish we could have just kept the British system and removed the corruption. <laughs> and... Hamilton says, I agree the British system is the best, but you need to keep the corruption because that's the grease that keeps the wheels of government moving. And Jefferson, of course, is shocked because he's an idealist. And uh, But those comments by Adams and Hamilton, you know, whether true or not, certainly there are a lot of actions that both took uh, when they were in power um, in the you know, first decade or two uh, under the Constitution. Uh, showed their conservatism. So um, the idea that this would not really even get a serious hearing, this proposal uh, to uh, arm women and put them in the field, uh, certainly shows the conservatism of the revolution as well as uh, of its opponents in Britain. But on the other hand, it also shows that the revolution uh, caused people to rethink conventions and so it may have been 
you know, Abigail Adams arguing, uh, if only in private, for more rights for women, or Valestris arguing that women can serve in the military, why not let them serve their country in time of need? Uh, it makes it in uh, the turmoil of war and revolution, it makes it easier for people to at least put forward new ideas. And yeah, once an idea is out there, it can uh, eventually continue to grow. And we do slowly see you know, gains being made uh, for women in the United States and uh, to some extent in Britain as well following the revolution. We see, of course, uh, action being taken uh, eventually in the 1830s by the British to abolish slavery in the British Empire because they start rethinking it when they uh, have so many slaves flocking uh, to the British Army. Uh, Americans also see this. They start thinking, you know, so the state governments in New England largely by court decision uh, abolish slavery is inconsistent with their ideas, and and then that spreads. That it, uh, 1787, the Confederation Congress adds the slavery ban to the Northwest Ordinance. So it, at the same time as people are trying to minimize the amount of change, the very disruption of war and revolution allows people to put forward new ideas, to propose new changes, and while it may take a long time before those materialize, uh, we do see them uh, taking place eventually. Uh, the Seneca Falls Convention uh, for Women's Rights is in 1848, and you know, certainly that's you know, many decades after the revolution, but you know, a lot of those ideas um, some historians see as having germinated uh, in the revolution to at least a limited extent. Jim Pikich, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.